I wasn't sure if I was going to share this story, but I will do. Many, many low points that we, we went through as a family. I, I'm quite a private per person, so I, goodness knows why I'm doing this podcast, honestly. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm going to be as open as I can today. I think my, maybe now is the time. There's always a little voice saying, oh, no one cares. <laughs> you know, um, it's not interesting. No one wants to know what you want to say. And I think that's exhausting. I think that's the really exhausting part of it. I mean, there were all these middle class kids there who had this endless confidence and knew how to do things. And I just let them go, get on with it. I'll try not to ask you lots of questions in one go is uh um i have a lot to say <laughs> we have to be doing the right things we have to do the things that universities would want us to do so um... oh you're a brave man <laughs> <laughs> this feels weirdly like coming out of the closet because i don't tend to talk about my but um i'm, I'm starting to be a bit more open about it i think it's a matter of fairness so anything that seems not fair really makes me annoyed i don't i'm not an angry annoyed sort of person but unfairness really makes me annoyed hi jenny thanks so much for uh, coming on the podcast this morning um i'll ask you the first questions i always ask what's the hardest change that you've been through well, I, I gave this a lot of thought because I've been through quite a lot of changes in my life. But um, I think the hardest one was um, 2009. Uh, and I'd just come back from maternity leave with my second daughter. So I had a baby and I had a preschooler. And uh, I was made redundant. Um, I was also uh, the only uh, wage earner in the household. So it was it was hugely challenging. Uh, and of course, in 2009, we were right in the middle of a, a recession. It was austerity. We just had the, the financial crisis and so on. And uh, I was living in a part of the country where there weren't a lot of jobs around, uh, and particularly the kind of jobs that I had done up until then. So I'd tended to sort of work. I worked in higher education and it had always been uh, in sort of the big partnership projects which are publicly funded or from European funding, which we used to have. Um, that was all just starting to dry up with austerity. So it was it was a very, very challenging time. Um, ironically, it was the first time in my career, really, that I'd had a permanent job. I'd always been on fixed term contracts, but I'd always had, you know, great job security. There's always lots going on. So, um, yeah, so it was just like hitting a brick wall, really. It was it was very, very challenging. Um, but I couldn't really afford to miss a beat. I had to just make money <laughs> so that we, you know, could eat food and keep a roof over our heads and so on. So um, uh, I I sort of pivoted to consultancy, which I had done before. But I'd done it before in the context of being single and having no children. And uh, it, this was a, a very different sort of proposition. Um, so so I did that. I got a consultant or well, two consultancy businesses off the ground with just so much help from some amazing people uh, and people who were willing to give me work. But it was a, it was an incredibly stressful time. And uh, I'm, I was listening to. Uh, one of your podcasts with with Mel, who uh, said, yeah, you always have to live like a pauper when you've got your own business. And it was very much like that. And it just got it just got so exhausting after a couple of years. Um, I remember I was I was up in Scotland. I wasn't sure if I was going to share this story, but I will do. I was up in Scotland and I was doing a piece of consultancy work up there. And I had this uh, suitcase with wheels, as we all do now. Uh, and one of the wheels broke. So um, so just a, a tiny little thing. Um, if you've got some money in the bank, it's great because you can just go and buy another suitcase. Uh, and the people I was with were saying, oh, no, you're going to have to get a new case. And I just smiled and nodded because I knew there was only enough in the bank to cover our bills uh, and there was nothing else. And that was only if one of my clients paid me on time, which you can never <laughs> guarantee anyway. So... Um, there was no chance I was going to buy another suitcase um, anytime soon. So I was just going to have to like lug my stuff by hand around. And it just, it was such a low moment. Um, 
because you feel you feel kind of cut off from people. You can't say, oh, yeah, no, I can't afford to buy a suitcase um, because people would think you were, I don't know, they, they would just look at you like you came from a different planet. Um, so I didn't tell anyone. But it was also on that trip that I was thinking, oh, I, I, you know what, I just need to get a job. How am I going to get a job? And I'd I'd put a few feelers out and nothing. And I read, uh, I, I was on the Guardian jobs board and uh, there was a, a very kind of cryptic uh, advert for a job saying there's a blue chip client who wants someone to improve their relationships with the higher education sector and I thought oh I could do that because <laughs> I'd spent quite a lot of time um, sort of making other sectors like higher education I thought well you know maybe I could make higher education like whoever this is as long as they're you know a, a good company and it turned out to be Unite Students who I'd never heard of uh, in the student accommodation, private student accommodation sector, which I'd never heard of and didn't know existed. But I thought, well, I had a great time in my own accommodation uh, when I was at university. I was at Durham University. So I was in student accommodation for three years and I had the greatest time. So I, I felt quite strongly about it. And then kind of the rest is history. So that's the that's the the change and the the challenge and the, you know, many, many low points that we we went through as a family before uh, I got the job at Unite Students. So that's the change. So that's quite a long-winded one, but uh, yeah, it was it was quite a journey. No, and thanks for sharing that story. And I wonder, obviously you say that was back in 2009, um, and, mm. and I wonder if you'd be more comfortable sharing that in, well, I nearly said 2023 then, we're now in 2024. <laughs> but, you know, I wonder if... We, things have changed a little bit where people are more open about sharing yeah. their their struggles although perhaps in perhaps in maybe not in the social media world we all try to project an image of everything's great and we're all doing really well mm -hmm. and actually it's really tough so i wonder if you think that's would you be comfortable sharing that with with other colleagues if you were having those troubles now or or, or not I think I probably would now. Yeah, I, I'm quite a private per person. So I, goodness knows why I'm doing this podcast, honestly, <laughs> Gareth. But, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be as open as I can today. I think my, maybe now is the time. But yeah, I, th I think people are more open now. But I, I think it, it's also, there's a, there's a bit of a, I think there's a bit of a pressure to be a bit performative about it. So I, I definitely feel that. And I know I see myself putting things on LinkedIn. Um, I put something on LinkedIn the other day about uh, imposter syndrome. And I you know, really kind of felt quite passionately about it. But I was aware of being a little bit performative as well. So you kind of have to question your motives as well. Um, and and I, I also have that fear of, you know, is, it, is this coming across as inauthentic is it is it um, is am i just some other person putting some nice words out on the on the social media so that i think there is that i think i think we probably all feel like we're in a a bit of a a glass cage and people are looking at us and we have to perform i don't know talking of performing yes. so when i was uh obviously researching this episode um and I was, and you were talking about your time at Durham. I was interested in. So, growing up in Hull, you were making your money as a busker, and then you went to <laughs> Durham, Durham to study maths. I'm wondering about yeah. how that how, how that journey came about. I don't know really. I I I don't even remember sort of agonising over the decision as what to do, in the way that my daughters are doing because they I think they feel like they've got loads and loads of opportunities and they it there's just this this pressure to make the the right decision but I mean there was no internet in those days and you you just picked something and went with it and I I can remember the conversation I had a conversation with my dad when I was applying to university and I said I don't know what I don't know what to do at university and he said well the thing you're best at is maths, which was true at the time. 
uh, maybe not so much now. And and I said, oh, I could go and do maths, couldn't I? He says, well, do you like maths? I said, yeah, yeah, I really like it. So that's what I did. <laughs> but of course, then uh, when I got there, I, I could saw all these other really cool subjects. So I did sort of change tracks so that I could broaden out what I was doing. And um, so I guess you, you know, come on to your, some of your other uh, interests later, but it seemed like, well, you talk about writing and music as being your, your passions. Mm. And, and clearly you were interested in, in being creative and, and music at that time. And that's why I was quite surprised when I saw that, you know, obviously talk about going to study maths, like you talk about there being no internet and, and not being able to think about opportunities at that time. But did you, were you not keen to produce, to pursue music as a passion at that time? Or did it not seem like something you could turn into, into a career perhaps? Yeah, I, th I think that was it. it. It didn't really occur to me that I could make a career out of it. And I think because I tended to like quite niche music. <laughs> um, and, you know, I could play, I played classical piano, but I wasn't that good. I mean, I, I sort of went through all the grades, but I, I was never, you know, a sort of music, musical prodigy. And I knew a lot of other musicians who were a lot better than me. So it never felt like, yeah, this is my shining talent and I'm going to go and be a concert concert pianist because that would have never worked but um I, I think as well because both of my parents uh studied um the science subject so they they both studied geology at university so it was kind of what people did in my head um and then you went on to be a librarian at a school in london <laughs> 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 well that was a case of uh, I need a job <laughs> and that I could I, I mean honestly I, I was looking I was thinking about this I was looking back I mean at 21 I'd never had an actual job I'd never been employed I mean I'd done a lot of things but I'd never been employed so I had no useful skills whatsoever and uh, goodness knows why anyone ever employed me because I didn't know how to be an employee at all um, so I, I sort of somehow got talked my way into this this job um and I'm not sure I was very good at it but it was it was definitely an education it was a, a big secondary school in West London it was incredibly diverse and I got to meet some really amazing people I learned so much from the kids I, I learned so much from the teachers it was great um and you know I think I did make some some changes and some some positive things happened but I don't think I was a great employee honestly <laughs> <laughs> I had a lot to learn so you know, went from Hull to Durham to London so did you move yeah. to London at that time or I did yeah I spent quite a lot of my time at university saying I'm not going to move to London like everyone else does I'm not going to do that and then I moved to London <laughs> um and you, you talked about your your post about so imposter syndrome, you know, which I found yeah. re really interesting. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of people talking about it at the moment. So how does that sort of manifest itself for you? You know, like, is it, is it before, before you go into a podcast? Is it before you, yeah. you know, how does that, I say physically affect you, but mentally affect you? Like when do, you know, do you say, oh, I'm feeling a bit <laughs> at the moment? I think it's I think it's self-doubt um just a constant self-doubt and self-undermining so you know coming into a, a podcast like this and I can I can tell you loads of things about my life and you know I've had a I've had quite an interesting career but there's always a little voice saying oh no one cares <laughs> you know <laughs> Um, it's not interesting. No one wants to know what you want to say. And you know, it's it's crazy because I stand on platforms and give presentations and I do all that. But there's always that little voice saying, nah, no one wants to know. <laughs> so you just gotta find ways to quell it. But it is it does take a toll. It's it's exhausting. And, and how... I haven't haven't found the switch to switch it off yet. But I think what I realized is that a lot of other people feel the same way I think they have di I think different people have different sort of flavors of imposter syndrome um but it's always I think that little voice 
that's trying to undermine you and sees your faults and wants to take you down. And uh, I was just sort of playing with how you turn that around and how you sort of make a virtue of what you see as your own weaknesses. So you talk about quelling it. How how do you quell your imposter syndrome? I don't think I do, actually. I think <laughs> I just carry on regardless. It's um, it's like the cost of doing business. I think it's interesting about that because clearly some people don't, well, don't have that. You know, I, you know, I would put, certainly put myself in the camp of, of having that. Um, you know, I don't look forward to, to public speaking and, you know, big groups of people and talking in front of them. But like you say, it's something you, you have to do. But I, I do wonder if you can ever, if there is ever a solution or whether you're just stuck with that for life. Yeah, maybe it's a feature, not a fault, because, you know, I'm I'm trying to think and, and I think the post really reflects that I'm trying to think about okay so what what are the what are the upsides because it means you you don't get overconfident you don't come across as being arrogant or you, you know you, it gives you a level of emotional intelligence I think um yeah I think I think <laughs> I, I'm very early on this journey but I think I'm starting to see the positives of it I think it makes me incredibly prepared i have to prepare yes. for everything yeah yeah i've got notes here i've got notes <laughs> <laughs> i have to uh you know overthink everything before i go and do it whether it's um yeah you know i took my son to a new swimming lesson last night and i'm overthinking i've never been there before where is it so you know i'm thinking i've got to talk to the teacher about you know all the things he can and can't do and even little things like that you think yeah. I, I should know all this stuff and I don't. <laughs> so it makes me incredibly prepared. But it, I think that's exhausting. I think that's the really exhausting part of it is the, you know, having to think through all the conversations before you have them. And then yeah. having, and then sometimes, not always, but sometimes then your brain kind of makes you review them afterwards and say, why did you say that? Why, what did they think when you said that? <laughs> it's exhausting. And I think it's something, some, Sometimes I think it's something that comes on when you're under stress anyway. It's just a sort of, a, a, you know, an, an extra little thing that your brain throws at you. I think exhausting is definitely the word. Mm -hmm. um, and you talked about, um, you know, how that, you know, before you go and speak and, you know, talk to people or, or anything. And, you know, I think many people, most people, and this is just my opinion, so you can tell me if I'm wrong, would consider you as someone that is influential in the sector and has a a voice that people listen to you know and but do you do you see yourself as that person or or not no. <laughs> not really <laughs> not really just bumbling along um yeah I think I see myself as a person who is always trying to change things so uh, you know, I thought that was quite interesting in terms of sort of the mission of this podcast, that my my mission is just to change things for the better. Um, whether that makes me an influencer or not, I, I think the best way to change things is to change people's minds about things. So I think that that's really the driver for a lot of the work I do and the getting up and standing up in front of people and doing all those scary things, because you know stories change the world if you if you can get an idea into someone's head it changes the way they think and then it changes what they do and how they approach things and that's that's how you get real change in in this sector and, and more widely you get frustrated when people won't change their minds do i get frustrated yeah i don't know um I feel like I've I've been the the kind of things I've been working on it's 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 not been a that there's not been a huge number of barriers. I mean it's it's very much going with the the flow, and I think that's that's one thing that I seem to have been able to do over the years is to catch something at a very early stage. You know when when people are just maybe starting to think about or talk talk about something like student mental health. Um, and just really kind of find ways to push that forward. So I'm very much going with the flow, I think, 
uh, similarly with the work we did in on Living Black at University, it just felt like it kind of caught the mood and turned it into something really concrete. So going back to you, you said you had a fantastic experience in your student yeah. accommodation. Um, what was fantastic about it and you know, what, what have you taken from that into the work that, that you do now? Well, I think probably the first thing is the context because I grew up in a council house and and I had a I had a great childhood I enjoyed it a lot but it was it was quite a small house and it was it was you know not not necessarily the greatest area so to go to Durham and be there and to have this this room which seemed to me quite luxurious I mean I th I'm sure students of today wouldn't think that but it seemed quite luxurious to me it had it, it didn't have an ensuite but it had its own sink and I'd never seen that before so um, I felt like I was living in the lap of luxury in this amazing place and um, it was it was incredibly social but everything was run by students so it was quite old school you know it was sort of JCR and they had a events committee and all sorts of things I was never confident enough to do to get involved in that at all I mean, there were all these middle class kids there who had this endless confidence and knew how to do things. And I just let them go, get on with it. But I just it was a great time. And, you know, just being surrounded by other students and everyone was really lovely. It was it was a great time. And, you know, it was all catered as well. So you just go down for your dinner. It was it was like I imagine what it would be like to go to a private school or something like that. It was. It, it wasn't quite Hogwarts because it was one of the new colleges, but it was it was halfway there. You know? I find that amazing that you know, given the work that you do now in shaping mm. policy, and mm. you know, and the work you do with with Unite, obviously, the, you know, the the largest provider. Yet you you didn't have the confidence to get involved in the in the junior <laughs> common room. <laughs> no. I think people would be surprised to hear that about you. I was, you know what, I was very shy as a child and I didn't have a lot of social confidence and it, it it's, you know, obviously I did, I did get over that, but at times of stress, it's something that social anxiety still comes back. So it's not gone altogether. And again, I think people would be very surprised because I'm quite good at faking it. Um, but yeah, I, I, I wasn't I wasn't very confident I was I was a little bit quiet still when I went to university and also I think you know I, I, I came from that sort of working class context and I was expecting to meet posh people at university but I didn't quite realize how how many uh, sort of grades of middle classness there was between me and the posh kids so um there, there were all these you know very confident grammar school kids from the south of England and uh, sort of taking up space and doing their thing and and it, that was great I mean fair play to them and and they they had such a sort of service ethos they they ran stuff brilliantly uh, I don't think I would have done quite as good a job, so let them crack on. But my goodness, I just went there and everyone knew, everyone knew what to do. Everyone knew how to talk to everyone else and I didn't really. So just, just sort of found my own way. Maybe they were faking it as well. Like, I, I think well, I... they might have been, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was certainly my uh, my, my university experience, uh, mm. betraying confidence that perhaps I didn't have at the time. Um, yeah. It's, Maybe um, we're all faking it. <laughs> so, so your daughter's planning to head off to university. Um, yeah. And given you know all the ins and outs of of the positives and and the hard bits of of yeah. university. So, um, from a parent's point of view, what's that like knowing your your daughter's about to go off to university, particularly with your your sort of inside knowledge of of the sector. Um, you know, are you are you nervous about her going? And and what advice would you give to parents about sending their their yeah. child child off to university? I asked you lots of questions there. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can see I'm just process. I've got my processing face on. Um, yeah, I 
there's a lot of things I can say about this and I'm trying to think about it because she's an adult so I don't want to sort of say things about her too too much because uh, I sort of want to protect that but um, I think the first thing to say is sort of having overseen the student support team at Unite for several years I know all the things that can go wrong with students you know right up to the most tragic things so I was always going to feel nervous about my kids going to university because I know what can happen. Um, so, so that <laughs> I think I think that's going to cause me maybe some sleepless nights. Um, I think also because my daughter has had mental health issues as a teenager, um, she's doing okay at the moment, but that hasn't always been the case. So, I think I think it will be challenging for me as a parent but what I do know is is really how committed universities are to supporting students and just how much that is resourced compared to when I went to university where it was barely apparent really so it's it's a, a mixture of being terrified <laughs> and being reassured oh, we'll have to see I, d I think I think uh you know, that moment when we drive away and leave her there, I think that that's when it will hit home. Anything oh. could happen. <laughs> <laughs> um, I know too much. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, I, I, I feel the same, albeit my, my, my children are very young, but yeah. yeah, I definitely feel the same. Um, And you talk about widening access and participation, and mm -hmm. I want, and that's really important to you, clearly. Um, yeah why why is it important to you it i think it's a matter of fairness so anything that seems not fair really makes me annoyed i don't i'm not an angry annoyed sort of person but unfairness really makes me annoyed so i think there's that i think it was just where where i grew up as well because you know my parents were graduates um they'd gone to university from a working class background um so we were a, a sort of a, a graduate household but in the context of lots and lots of people who didn't go to university and I found out later because I I was I worked in Hull for a while um part way through my career that the estate I grew upon one in two thousand people went to university wow. and I thought about all the people that I knew particularly at primary school in the local area and just the all the talents they had uh, as children and kind of what happened to that later and there's a the story I, I've told before um, in the context of the Unite Foundation so so I was part of the team that sort of brought the Unite Foundation to life in its early days but I remember um, we had a, a, a little recorder class at our school as many um, many schools did so that we could torture our parents with our recorder playing um, and it was something I was really into obviously being a, a musician but there were there were these two little girls who were part of that group um, and used to come along with their recorders and I remember one day they were standing outside of the class crying because their mum had told them that they weren't allowed to play recorder anymore. And there's just something about that kind of ingrained fear about doing things different or getting on that kind of holds people back. And, and to me, that was a real something I look back on in later life and thought, you know, just how people limit themselves and how how they can limit their children because of fear of well, you can't do that posh girls do that or whatever it might be it's not for the likes of us um and that still happens and and maybe not quite in the same way as it did in whenever that was 1980 or something but there's there's sort of different flavors and different versions of of that for um sort of different groups in society it's it's not for us we you know, and, and that fear of rejection as well. If we put ourselves into this place, we'll, we'll be rejected. So I think there's just something about, it's not just fairness and it's not just, oh yeah, put everyone 
give everyone the same opportunities and they'll get the same outcome. It's not like that because there's those ways of thinking and ways of believing and seeing yourself and ways that other other people might see you that just close doors, close doors at every stage. That's a, a very esoteric answer to your question, but it's it really, really makes me sad when people can't pursue things that they are good at or they're passionate about because of these different barriers. So some of it is about uh, their own beliefs and, and that sort of raising aspiration, as we used to call it. And some of it is about practical support. So that's something that we do in the Unite Foundation. If you haven't got the support for family, if you've been in care, if you're estranged from your parents, we're going to step in and pay for your accommodation and we're going to give you support and we're going to connect you with others and we're going to do everything we can uh, alongside the university to make sure you can go to university and you can do well um, and you can have that sort of supportive group around you. So for those you talked about, you know, people in on the estate that you grew up in, those that... Mm you know may want to go to university but but don't because of some of the reasons you've talked about you know clearly there's there's lots of work to do there um mm. does it start in with parents does it start with teachers you know because i remember going back to you know i went to a i went went to a grammar school in a in a very small town in lincolnshire yet still the aspiration was quite low you know, if I, you know, I remember careers advisors back in the day. I, I know it's changed a lot because my wife works in a in a multi academy trust of schools on on careers. But what can we do at that sort of, you know, before they're even thinking about going to university with with parents and and maybe teachers or or leaders in schools to to get people to see that. I feel like there's so many things that I could say about that because um, I, I was involved in a lot of projects. There's um, so a couple of things that I would say. So I on the on the subject of how other people can limit people's aspirations. I I saw uh, it was up in a, a northern seaside town. I won't name it, uh, and we had a project going between. The university which had a satellite campus out there and the college and the uh, the college brought in some kids on a vocational course just to sort of have a taster of university and um, the, the team who were running that reported back to me and they said well we had a terrible time with the actual tutors because they were saying oh these kids won't amount to anything there's I don't know why they're here because they're never going to go to university and actually the kids really got stuck in and uh, did really well and and I think I'm not sure that's something that would happen now because this was maybe 20 years ago but um, really you know the the feedback had to be given to the college look the these kids can do things you know they're 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 they're, they're keen to learn if they've got the right opportunities but I think I saw a kind of counter example to that in um, it was in York York College um, some students on a I, I did a evaluation interview with some students on a foundation degree and they all of them said we would never have gone on to higher education we would not be considering you know sort of moving on to a full degree if it hadn't been for our tutors because all the way through they said you can do this it's fine we'll, we'll help you you can go to university you can do all these things so I think just the influence of your teachers and your tutors is absolutely crucial um i think the other example i would give is about how parents can discover a, a sort of a second chance for learning if if that's something that they need because they're really am ambitious for their kids and and we saw it particularly amongst mothers so down down in london um but also sort of up in the north you know it's if you see that your kids have opportunities that you didn't have, you kind of want to, you want to encourage them, but you want to help them as well. So if it, that that's a really kind of key moment to be introducing, well, why don't you come and do this? We'll, we'll arrange it around when your kids are at school and, you know, it could be a, just a little access course and um, really kind of framing that around 
helping your kids that's that's been a way into educate or back into education for sort of you know women with kids as well and that that transforms the whole family so you talked about the or living black at university research yeah. that's been ongoing um now a lot of our listeners are, are clearly in higher education student accommodation so we'll be aware of it but for those that aren't talk about that work and and, and the impact that that is going to have or or perhaps has already had yeah uh this it, it's quite a big project now so i'll, I'll try and be concise about it <laughs> Um, I feel like I've I've mainly just infused at you about all sorts of projects. Um, so it, it went back to before the pandemic. Um, I was doing a piece of research on something completely different, and I kept because because we had quite a diverse group of of students um, in each of the focus groups. I kept just hearing little things from black students that were sort of ringing a bell with me. I didn't really know what to make of them. Things like, or people assume I'm going to be aggressive because I'm black. Um, I wanted to know there was someone else like me. And I, I thought, I, I don't know what this means, but it means something. There's something going on here. Um, and I wonder what kind of experience black students are having in their student accommodation um, and whether there are some specific issues there, with how it compares to sort of the majority population. So that was the, the kind of the origin story I suppose of the the research but then it became an incredibly uh, collaborative venture so um, you know we we sort of uh, commissioned the research uh, my colleagues Cam, uh, Sam Kingsley and Jen Stedman got on board we did we did some some great work there with the students with helping partnership who did the research and we found out that yeah, there were there were some quite specific issues, um, particularly around being able to feel at home. There was a lot more racism than we thought, which was quite sad to to hear. Um, and just you know some very specific issues that were resulting in uh, poorer mental health, um, uh, less of a sense of community and belonging, which which we know is really important among black students and just, you know, really some culture shock issues as well from, you know, particularly um, students who've lived in, you know, somewhere like London where there's a, a really big black population, it's easy to get your hair care, it's easy to get the food that you're used to eating. And then you go to somewhere like Hull or Preston or something, and there's none of that. And you walk into a shop and everyone stares at you. And it's it's just, you know, it's it's quite a quite a difficult experience. So uh that that was kind of the how how it all started. Um and then we moved on to activating it and we set up the commission and then it's become sort of everyone's project, quite rightly. Um and you know, universities and accommodation providers right across the country have really wanted to take action. So what we've been doing is trying to just set out some guidance and some toolkits to help people take that action. And then most recently, we've published a, just an overview of good practice, people's projects, uh, how people have brought this to life for students. But we're, we're going into the second phase We're we're just about to announce the second phase of that because the work is not done yet. Until black students are having an equitable time, the work is not done. And that was one of my questions is, I'll try not to ask you lots of questions in one go, is... Uh, <laughs> um, I have a lot to say. <laughs> <laughs> is how will you measure that and in terms of them having an equitable experience at university? How will you know whether that's been successful or is it the case that there's no you can't measure that you just want to see continuous improvement um so we would like to repeat the survey um probably not this year but in in a future year just to see how things have changed 
so it was a you know it was a representative survey across the whole of the sector so it's a, a national level survey and we want to repeat that um i think there is some work to be done in terms of assessing what what in what sort of universities and pre, uh, private providers have done with this so to to understand the activity but i think I think we do have to come back to the impact. Um, I would also like to see if it has an impact on the awarding gap. So for those who don't know what that is, uh, black students uh, come out of university with, uh, I, so there are, I'm gonna get this right, okay. Um, there is a, a lower proportion of firsts and two ones amongst black students than there are among white students. Now, that cannot be because they are not as intelligent. That does not make sense. So what are the drivers to that? And uh, most universities are doing something on the academic side with that and, and really sort of focusing on it, but it's an incredibly stubborn measure we have not really seen progress on it. Um, I think that what happens outside of the classroom, and I'm not the only one who thinks this, makes a, a big difference. Because if your accommodation doesn't feel like home, if it feels hostile, if you're experiencing racism, that is going to affect your academic performance. It, of course it's going to. So can we make a, a difference there? And can we be part of that real push to make a, a change on this awarding gap? My other question around that is about the freedom you have within Unite to pursue these projects, as you call them, initiatives, <laughs> research. Um, you know, it's clearly that it's important and it's become, you know, you've, you've been there for what, over 12 years. So it's clearly important to them that you're doing this work, yeah. or you've done a few different roles, but um, how do you make your voice heard within Unite that this is particularly important and things need to change? I don't really know. <laughs> I, I feel like I feel like I've been pushing on an open door. And you know, I I thought really long and hard about going into the private sector because before I worked for Unite, I'd I'd worked in I'd worked in the public sector, I'd worked in the charitable sector, I'd never worked in the private sector, and I'd always felt like I probably never would. Um, and then I did. Uh, but I had to think about it, and and I had to feel, and I, I said this interview as well, that if, if I was going to come in and improve Unite's relationship with higher education, it's got to be it's got to be sincere. We can't just be doing marketing. We can't just be saying the right things. We have to be doing the right things. We have to do the things that universities would want us to do. Uh, and they said, yeah, no, that's okay. You can do that. So I think it, I think that willingness was there from the start. And that's the basis on which I took the job. And I think I've probably pushed my luck on that because I've, I've had, uh, I've managed to persuade people to do all sorts of things that that feel maybe quite risky for a, a, a private sector business to be doing. Um, but so far, it's it's all gone very well. And I think that's just testament to how great our exec are and our board. They're, they're really on board with it. Um, and a topic that I cover a lot alongside my passion for the living sectors is neurodiversity. Yeah. Um, so I talked about my neurodiverse children many times on this podcast and, and, and perhaps my own possible neurodiversity that I should really explore at some point. Um, uh, but how can the sector or, or what is the sector doing around supporting neurodiverse people going to university and, and maybe going into accommodation as well? Are there, is that happening or, or not? I think it's starting to happen. So it, it's it's something that I feel very passionately about as well. And I'm, I'm not going to go into specifics because they are teenagers, but it, it is a feature in my family as well. Um, and, you know, maybe for me. <laughs> but 
but you know got this far so um but yeah so we did a piece of work last year so it was about this time last year on the experience of neurodivergent students in student accommodation and it was really born from actually going to open days with my daughter and discovering that uh, University of Bristol had its own student-led neurodiverse society um, and we had a chat with them and they were they were really amazing and they'd they'd sort of advocated for change and they'd, they'd done all sorts of things and I think that's what planted the seed of doing this piece of work and we also had some data from our um, I think it was from our applicant index that suggested that neurodivergent applicants in particular were having a quite a challenging time and had specific needs which which you know we we sort of knew anyway so um we brought that data together with some qualitative work in partnership with the uh, neurodivergent society at the university of bristol and and that was really good i absolutely loved working with the students um and we uh, we brought a report. It's quite a small report together, but uh, my co-author was one of the students, Freya, uh, and that was a great experience. And it's it feels like that's still at an early stage. So we've put it out there. I know that people are using it. It really sort of outlines the issues rather than necessarily sort of prescribing all the solutions. It's it's got some ideas of of what could be done. And again, these these were really very much delivered by the students themselves. But I think probably uh as a sector we're we're still in the early stages there uh, and it would be good to think about how we could push that on um for those that aren't aware you're i think and correct me if i'm wrong here i'm sure you're one day a week you're working with the dfe's higher education mental health implementation task force i got that right first time that, i can't say it even now it's <laughs> <laughs> too um, much <laughs> Um, so we can come on to obviously what uh, yeah. what that work is, but um, obviously it's focusing on four main areas. And I know there's there's a paper due, I think, in May um, to update on this. Yeah. But um, you know, talk to me a little bit about that and and the progress that you've been making as a group um, and yourself on on that. It's it is a huge and very complex initiative, um, which, as I discovered last year is is quite challenging to be working on one day a week because <laughs> <laughs> you're kind of having to switch in and out of it and lots of complicated things have happened in the meantime but um i'm working with professor edward peck who is uh he's the vice chancellor at nottingham trent but he's also the uh the government student support champion and it's been great working with him he's he's so so practical and so knowledgeable um so I'm just kind of supporting uh, a couple of the projects on there. So the first part of the work that I did last year was um, was a, a really broad consultation to see what else we should be doing as a task force. So we had some uh, we had some priorities and some projects, but my my brief was what else? <laughs> so that was that was great because I got to talk to about fifty people, although it was incredibly mind-blowing trying to then condense this into some practical suggestions because I heard everything that everyone thought about student mental health across the whole of the country uh, and uh, it was it was like you know I could make a, a Doctor Who analogy here but I think it would be too complicated so I'm going to just step back on that but yeah it is like trying to absorb all the dimensions at once in your brain um but uh for for the remainder of the, the the task force this year so up till may i'm i'm just leading two small projects um around i don't know i don't know how much i'm allowed to say about this really because this is i'm i'm very conscious this is not my gig but yes i'm i'm leading a couple of projects in the the sort of learning development area and um a student compact as well we can say watch this space student, for student commitment <laughs> student commitment i think it is yeah we, we can watch this space for for the report yeah. that comes out um yeah there's, there's quite a bit already on the student support champion website so 
there'll be a slightly less cryptic version there. And there's a, a DFE website as well about the, the task force. But because it because it involves government, because it involves, you know, it's, it's led by others. It's it's not really my project to talk about other than that. I'm really happy it's I'm really happy it exists and I'm really happy that I get to contribute to it. And it's just an opportunity to make a national difference to students and just set set things in place, set new practices and new norms in place that will really help take things forward. So one thing when, when I was working in, in PBSA that we always struggled with, you know, as as a, you know, when, when I was working on site, but even when working as a as part of the corporate team, was what to define the role in supporting students' mental health for particularly site teams in in PBSA because you know there's it's quite it's more complex in my opinion than people think because where you want to be a good person and help that's yeah pretty normal hopefully um but also you have a responsibility to the organization that you work for and and balancing those those things accordingly and also not overstepping uh you know i know we've we, we've seen you know conversations around when should universities talk to parents about a student mm -hmm. suffering with with poor mental health so i wonder what your thoughts are around of what the role is particularly for site team members in you know, what what should they be doing or maybe even what shouldn't they be doing uh, to support <laughs> students with that are that are suffering with with poor mental health yeah it it's it's a very interesting question that gareth and and that's that's really the question that we had to work out the answer to around about 2015 2016 when we first started on this because no one had really asked the question, you know, back, back in those days, no one had really asked the question about that. We, I think we were quite early on this and we got a lot of things wrong, to be honest. It was, it was a really tricky time because we were trying to do something that no one had done. University partners didn't really know why we were doing it at the time. I mean, they do now, but at the time it's like, well, leave it all to us, just send them all to us. But you can't do that at four in the morning. You can't do that when you've got you know, you, you discover that you've got um, a, a member of your security staff who's spending two hours a night listening to a student because they are struggling with their mental health and they're over-reliant on this person. So there's, the, I mean, you'll know and everyone listening will know um, kind of what, what can happen. So we had to work out the answers to these questions and sort of we drew on uh, existing staff. We We had specialist staff come in we drew on consultants to to help us understand that but we did eventually i think come to some conclusions which probably too long to talk you through now but we did publish them um as part of the uh, british property federation guidance on student well-being which you can with a bit of judicious googling you can find it it's not very prominent on their website now but it it um you can google it and it was endorsed by the minister as well so i think we got to a point of sort of defining um the the boundaries of the role understanding what training people needed to have understanding the protocols around um disclosures and sharing data and so on we're still working a little bit i think on data sharing but i think there's kind of almost a rule set around that um interestingly enough one of the pieces of work that i am doing with the mental health task force now is looking at what that looks like in universities for sort of non-specialist staff like tutors and and so on um and how how you get to that point where you can be helpful and make a referral but you've got your your boundaries in place you're not overstepping you're not over serving you're um just doing the right thing by that student well we can we can find that uh link and and post it in the yeah, show notes well, so I'll hopefully, send that to you. <laughs> hopefully yeah. uh, make it easier and, for people to find yeah and and actually to get a mo more coherent and up-to-date answer you would have to ask my colleague becca hayhurst because she's 
she's leading that now and she's she's taken us on uh, even further I want to talk to you about something completely different now and that's podcasts Yay. <laughs> <laughs> my uh, favorite thing um so start with accommodation matters um yes uh, why did you start it and and well talk to people about if they haven't listened to accommodation matters okay so there's two different questions there why I started it and there's a bit of a rambly answer to that but I grew up listening to radio um and we we had a a very perfunctory television in my house it was black and white it was very small so radio was always sort of my primary thing I was very early to podcasts I was an early listener to podcasts I made a podcast in 2006 wow. <laughs> um so so i i absolutely adore podcasts so that's why i started like i keep starting podcasts and being on podcasts but the reason we started accommodation matters funnily enough it was one of my colleagues who suggested it um but it just seemed like there was there was a gap in the market for an accommodation podcast so I think we were a little bit early I think there's it's great now that there's so many but I think we were a little bit early to the to the party there and we had to work out what format was going to work now I was quite instrumental in helping to set that up but I wasn't the first presenter we had the fabulous Darren Ellis as the presenter um, and I just took over sort of more recently but what what was your second question now? I've forgotten now because I've just enthused about podcasts. <laughs> oh, no, I think you answered it talking about, you know, and I think one thing, uh, and, you know, we were talking before this episode about, you know, what you discuss in a podcast. And mm. and I think, you know, where it's really found, well found its place for me, I can only speak for myself, is talking about issues that aren't investments, operation, yes, yeah. rental growth, you know, all those, you know, like there, there's yeah, plenty of yeah. podcasts talking all about that, actually talking about, you know, about students and the issues that yeah. that affect them, and I think that's that, that's definitely where where that gap was, and you you filled it very well. Yeah, um, and it's and I think it's just a it's just a product of what I'm interested in because I'm not really interested in rental growth and <laughs> things like that, but I'm really interested in students and a lot of other people are as well, and I I think that's where. I think that's where the awareness and the growth has been in the sector. When I went, I mean, it was 2012 when I first came into PBSA and it was all about buildings and rental growth. And, you know, there, there was there was some talk of students and I think local teams probably went under the radar with the good work that they were doing. But I don't think it was, it had nothing like the profile that it does in the sector now and it's it's been great to see how res life has sort of grown um within this country it was it was an american thing uh maybe 10 years ago it was this is this is what americans do um but the the tradition of that sort of really holistic approach to the residential experience you know was was a part of our higher education sector you know back in the 60s so you know maybe we invented it and it's certainly what i experienced at durham yeah um, and the other podcast i want to talk to you about is handed down yeah. um, <laughs> which, which i've been listening to in preparation for this episode so um, oh you're a brave man <laughs> <laughs> um so for those that haven't listened to handed down talk to me about that <laughs> This feels weirdly like coming out of the closet because I don't tend to talk about my strange musical interests much at work, but um, I'm, I'm starting to be a bit more open about it. And now, of course, I've got the podcast, so uh, I can't hide. But so I literally, it literally came from a dream. I woke up one morning and I thought I should start a podcast about the stories behind traditional songs. Now, this didn't come from nowhere because I've been a folk musician all my life. Gosh, that's it, it's one of those things that is deeply unfashionable, maybe maybe less so now, but um, I've always grown up with folk music. I've always sung and played instruments and made folk music. Um, 
and I'm, I'm quite interested in the old sort of traditional songs. I didn't necessarily know a great deal about them, but I thought I bet there's some really interesting stories behind them. And and there were. And and I love telling stories and I love making music. So I just brought it all together. And it's just a it's just a combination of music and weird history and colourful characters and folklore and my uh often quite feminist take on the songs as well and yeah it's just it's just me having fun and doing the things that I really am interested in well you people are interested in it as well it's got <laughs> it's got some listeners but it, it it is quite quirky I think well um, for someone that knows nothing about folk music I've enjoyed particularly the Bessie Bell episode I really liked that oh, one that, that was, was a bit uh, of a romp yeah that, that, that was a fantastic <laughs> story um another thing I wanted to ask you about is you know when we were you told me when we were we were obviously researching the episode that yeah. when you turned thirty, you went to night school to get your English A level because <laughs> you'd all, because you'd always wanted to do it, and and I wonder why that was. I know you talked about you know yeah. adults going back into education later on, but why was that important to you? Because I I don't know. Um, I'm trying to think back. I did, I did maths, physics, and chemistry, and all that for my A levels. Because you know, because I'd said my parents were scientists, I had to sort of close off things that I might have been interested in, and, and English was definitely one of them. And I had friends who did English A level, and they, I, I thought they were studying some, you know, such interesting things. I was a little bit jealous, but I was on my path. Um, but then it occurred to me, I think, sort of late 20s and just as I was turning 30, oh, I could just go and do this now. I could go and do my English A-level and have a really great time. And I did have a really great time. I enjoyed it a lot. So, yeah, that's that's why I did it. So we'll come on to quick fire round questions now. Oh, so yeah. if you could change one thing about the world, what would it be? Now, it would be our education system. And I know that um, Maggie Cara said something similar because I've been really quite shocked at how much um, secondary school is teaching kids to pass exams. And I know why it is. It's because schools have targets uh, that they have to hit, but it is just how to pass the exam. And I would change the education system so that it was about exploring the subject and exploring yourself and learning how to learn and discovery and how to how to cooperate how to problem solve I, I would change it fundamentally because this you know you've got to do this and you've got to jump through this hoop and you've got to tick this off and then you'll get the marks in the exam that's not an education I, I I'm just I feel quite outraged about it. Uh, it's, there's nothing I can do about it, but if I could change the world, that's what I would do. I think many people would would agree with you. I, I think, mm. you know, I I enjoyed school. You know, it's just my own personal, mm. but I didn't enjoy exams much. As yeah. find that job interviews very similar. Like my, recalling a situation when put on the spot. Like you have to do an exam, very similar to a job interview. You know, tell me about a time when you did this. You're like, oh, <laughs> I'm trying to think. You know, my brain doesn't work like that. So, um, yeah, so yeah, I, de I definitely agree. But um, I, I think when I was at school, it wasn't really like that. And we had some great teachers, particularly my English teacher, who, you know, she she had to sort of squash in. This is how you pass your exam. But it was really about. She was so enthusiastic about the the text, and the books, and the poetry and everything. She really sort of instilled that love of it. And I think that's part. That's also why I went to do English A level eventually. Um, and if what advice would you give to someone who wants to wants to change direction but doesn't know where to start? So I would say take one step. And see how it goes but I would also I say this to my kids a lot at the moment is you know weigh things up but take take a decision but just commit to the decision once you've taken it because it usually it's it's there's very few completely wrong decisions and you usually know if you're taking a wrong decision but there are a lot of okay decisions you know there's the, there's very few perfect ones if you take a decision 
absolutely commit to it and then it will work out. So that's what I would also say. And what's going to be your next big change? I don't really know. <laughs> yeah, I really don't. And it, I was I was trying to think about this last night, but I spent a lot of my career thinking about the next step and really kind of striving and feeling frustrated and why aren't I here and why aren't I there? And somehow during the lockdown, that all went away. And I feel like I'm incredibly lucky to have the job I have. I love what I do. And I just want to keep doing it. So for, for one of the first times in my life, I'm not trying to take a, a new step or do something different. I'm just sort of happy where I am, which is quite nice. It is. And the final question, if you were to recommend a guest or more than one guest, for me to speak to on Know Your Shift, who would it be? Well, I'm so lucky that I work with so many really amazing women so I've got a really long list <laughs> we like long lists amazing That's good. women but I I think uh Sam Kingsley um definitely who has been a real leading light in the Living Black at University work she's she's just um gone into consultancy she would be an amazing guest um another one would be Bernadette Koshana who is our head of international and is an incredible expert on international students so there's two but i have lots more <laughs> <laughs> well, well we'll definitely start with those two and um, and try and get episodes um jenny i just want to say thanks very much for for joining me on the podcast today um i know it isn't easy to be a guest particularly when i throw lots of lots of different questions <laughs> at you but i think the best podcast episodes are where you learn something and i've definitely learned learned a lot today and i'm sure everyone listening thank to you. it to it will so um so yeah thanks very much it's been a pleasure thanks guys